Book 1, Chapter 13 of Off on a Comet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elwood Mott. Off on a Comet by Jules Verne. Translated by Anonymous. Book 1, Chapter 13. Then I take your bishop, Major said Colonel Murphy, as he made a move that had taken since the previous evening to consider. I was afraid you would, replied Major Oliphant, looking intently at the chessboard. Such was the way in which a long silence was broken on the morning of the 17th of February by the old calendar. Another day lapsed before another move was made. It was a protracted game. It had, in fact, already lasted some months, the players being so deliberate and so fearful of taking a step without the most mature consideration that even now they were only making the twentieth move both of them moreover were rigid disciples of the renowned philidor who pronounces that play the pawns well is the soul of chess and accordingly not one pawn had been sacrificed without a most rigorous defence the men who were thus beguiling their leisure were two officers in the british army colonel heneage finch murphy and Major Sir John Temple Oliphant. Remarkably similar in personal appearance, they were hardly less so in personal character. Both of them were about forty years of age. Both of them were tall and fair, with bushy whiskers and mustaches. Both of them were phlegmatic in temperament, and both much addicted to the wearing of their uniforms. They were proud of their nationality and exhibited a manifest dislike verging upon contempt of everything foreign. Probably they would have felt no surprise if they had been told that Anglo-Saxons were fashioned out of some specific clay, the properties of which surpass the investigation of chemical analysis without any intentional disparagement. They might, in a certain way, be compared to two scarecrows which, though perfectly harmless in themselves, inspire some measure of respect and are excellently adapted to protecting the territory entrusted to their guardianship. English-like, the two officers had made themselves thoroughly at home in the station abroad in which it had been their lot to be quartered. The faculty of colonization seems to be indigenous to the native character. Once let an Englishman plant his national standard on the surface of the moon, and it would not be long before a colony was established round it. The officers had a servant named Kirk and a company of ten soldiers of the line. This party of thirteen men was, were apparently the sole survivors of an overwhelming catastrophe, which on the 1st of January had transformed an enormous rock, garrisoned with well-nigh two thousand troops, into an insignificant island far out to sea. But although the transformation had been so marvelous, it cannot be said that either Colonel Murphy or Major Oliphant had made such demonstrations of astonishment. This is all very peculiar, Sir John, observed the colonel. Yes, colonel, very peculiar, replied the major. England will be sure to send for us, said one officer. No doubt she will, answered the other. Accordingly, they came to the mutual resolution that they would stick to their post. To say the truth, it would have been difficult matter for the gallant officers to do otherwise. They had but one small boat, therefore it was well that they made a virtue of necessity and resigned themselves to patient expectation of the British ship which, in due time, would bring relief. They had no fear of starvation. Their island was mined with subterranean stores, more than ample for thirteen men, nay, for thirteen Englishmen, 
for the next five years at least. Preserved meat, ale, brandy, all were in abundance. Consequently, as the men expressed it, they were in this respect all right. Of course, the physical changes that had taken place had attracted the notice both of officers and men. But the reverse position of east and west, the diminution of the force of gravity, and the altered rotation of the earth, and her projection upon a new orbit, were all things that gave them little concern and no unqueasiness. And when the colonel and the major had replaced the pieces on the board which had been disturbed by the convulsion, any surprise they might have felt at the chessmen losing some portion of their weight was quite forgotten in the satisfaction of seeing them retain their equilibrium. One phenomenon, however, did not fail to make its due impression upon the men. This was a diminution of the length of day and night. Three days after the catastrophe, Corporal Pym, on behalf of himself and his comrades, solicited a formal interview with the officers. The request having been granted, Pym, with the nine soldiers, all punctiliously wearing the regimental tunic of scarlet and trousers of invisible green, presented themselves at the door of the colonel's room, where he and his brother officer were continuing their game, raising his hand respectfully to his cap, which he wore poised jauntily over his right ear, and scarcely held on by the strap below his under lip, the corporal waited permission to speak. After a lingering survey of the chessboard, the colonel slowly lifted his eyes and said with official dignity, Well, men, what is it? First of all, sir, replied Corporal Prim, we want to speak to you about our pay, and then we wish to have a word with the major about our rations. Say on, then, said Colonel Murphy. What is it about your pay? Just this, sir. As the days are only half as long as they were, we should like to know whether our pay is to be diminished in proportion. The colonel was taken somewhat aback and did not reply immediately, though by some significant nods towards the major he indicated that he thought the question very reasonable. After a few moments' reflection he replied, It must, I think, be allowed that your pay was calculated from sunrise to sunrise. There was no specification of what the interval should be. Your pay will continue as before. England can afford it. A buzz of approval burst involuntarily from all the men, but military discipline and the respect due to their officers kept them in check from any boisterous demonstration of their satisfaction. And now, Corporal, what is your business with me? asked Major Oliphant. We want to know whether, as the days are only six hours long, we are to have but two meals instead of four? The officers looked at each other and by their glances agreed that the corporal was a man of sound common sense. Eccentricities of nature, said the major, cannot interfere with military regulations. It is true that there will be but an interval of an hour and a half between them, but the rule stands good. Four meals a day. England is too rich to grudge her soldiers any of her soldiers do. Yes, four meals a day. Hurrah! shouted the soldiers, unable this time to keep their delight within the bounds of military decorum, and, turning to the right about, they marched away, leaving the officers to renew the all-absorbing game. However confident everyone upon the island might profess to be that succor would be sent them from their native land, for Britain never abandons any of her sons, it could not be disguised that succor was somewhat tardy in making its appearance. 
many and various were the conjectures to account for the delay perhaps in england was engrossed with domestic matters or perhaps she was absorbed in diplomatic difficulties or perchance more likely than all northern europe had received no tidings of the convolution that had shattered the south the whole party throve remarkably well upon the liberal provisions of the commissariat department and if the officers failed to show the same tendency to embon point which was fast becoming characteristic of the men it was only because they deemed it due to their rank to curtail any indulgences which might compromise the fit of their uniform on the whole time passed indifferently well an englishman rarely suffers from ennui and then only in his own country when required to conform to what he calls the humbug of society and the two officers with their similar tastes ideas and dispositions got on together admirably it is not to be questioned that they were deeply affected by the sense of regret for their lost comrades and astounded beyond measure at finding themselves the sole survivors of a garrison of eighteen hundred and ninety five men but with true british pluck and self-control they had done nothing more than draw up a report that eighteen hundred and eighty two names were missing from the muster roll the island itself the sole surviving fragment of an enormous pile of rock that had reared itself some sixteen hundred feet above the sea was not strictly speaking the only land that was visible for about twelve miles to the south there was another island apparently the very counterpart of what was now occupied by the englishmen it was only natural that this should awaken some interest even in the most imperturbable mind and there was no doubt that the two officers during one of their rare intervals when they were not absorbed in their game had decided that it would be desirable at least to ascertain whether the island was deserted or whether it might not be occupied by some others like themselves survivors from the general catastrophe certain it is that one morning when the weather was bright and calm they had embarked alone in the little boat and been absent for seven or eight hours not even to corporal pym did they communicate the object of their excursion nor say one syllable as to its result and it could only be inferred from their manner that they were quite satisfied with what they had seen and very shortly afterwards major oliphant was observed to draw up a lengthy document which was no sooner finished than it was formally signed and sealed with the seal of the thirty-third regiment it was directed to the first lord of the admiralty london and kept in readiness for transmission by the first ship that should hail in sight but time elapsed and here was the eighteenth of february without an opportunity having been afforded for any communication with the british government at breakfast that morning the colonel observed to the major that he was under the most decided impression that the eighteenth of february was a royal anniversary and he went on to say that although he had received no definite instructions on the subject he did not think that the peculiar circumstances under which they found themselves should prevent them from giving the day its due military honors the major quite concurred and it was mutually agreed that the occasion must be honored by a bumper of port and by a royal salute corporal pym must be sent for the corporal soon made his appearance smacking his lips having by a ready intuition found a pretext for a double morning ration of spirits the eighteenth of february you know pym said the colonel we must have a salute of twenty-one guns very good replied pym a man of few words 
and take care that your fellows don't get their arms and legs blown off, added the officer. Very good, sir, said the corporal, and he made his salute and withdrew. Of all the bombs, howitzers, and various species of artillery with which the fortress had been crowded, one solitary piece remained. This was a cumbrous muzzle loader of nine-inch caliber, and, in default of the smaller ordnance generally employed for the purpose, had to be brought into requisition for the royal salute. A sufficient number of charges having been provided, the corporal brought his men to the reduct, whence the gun's mouth projected over a sloping embrasure. The two officers, in cocked hats and full staff uniform, attended to take charge of the proceedings. The gun was maneuvered in strict accordance with the rules of the artillerymen's manual, and the firing commenced. Not unmindful in the warnings he had received, the corporal was most careful between each discharge to see that every vestige of fire was extinguished, so as to prevent an untimely explosion while the men were reloading, and accidents such as so frequently mar public rejoicings were all happily avoided. Much to the chagrin of both Colonel Murphy and Major Oliphant, the effect of the salute fell altogether short of their anticipations. The weight of the atmosphere was so reduced that there was comparatively less resistance to the explosive force of the gases liberated at the cannon's mouth, and there was consequently none of the reverberation like rolling thunder that ordinary follows the discharge of heavy artillery. Twenty times the gun had been fired, and it was on the point of being loaded for the last time when the colonel laid his hand upon the arm of the man who had the ramrod. Stop, he said. We will have a ball this time. Let us put the range of the piece to the test. Good idea, replied the major. Corporal, you hear the orders? In quick time, an artillery wagon was on the spot, and the men lifted out a full-size shot weighing 200 pounds, which under ordinary circumstances the cannon would carry about four miles. It was proposed by means of telescopes to note the place where the ball first touched the water, and thus to obtain an approximation sufficiently accurate as to the true range. Having been duly charged with powder and ball, the gun was raised to an angle of something under 45 degrees, so as to allow proper development to the curve that the projectile would make, and at a signal from the major, the light was applied to the primings. Heavens! By all that's good! exclaimed both officers in one breath. As standing open-mouthed, they hardly knew whether they were to believe the evidence of their own senses. Is it possible? The diminution of the force of attraction at the Earth's surface was so considerable that the ball had sped beyond the horizon. Incredible, ejaculated the colonel. Incredible, echoed the major. Six miles at least, observed one. Aye, more than that, replied the other. A while they gazed at the sea and at each other in mute amazement. But in the midst of their perplexity, what sound was that which startled them? Was it mere fancy? Was it the reverberation of the cannon still booming in their ears, or was it not truly the report of another and a distant gun in answer to their own? Attentively and eagerly they listened. Twice, thrice did the sound repeat itself. It was quite distinct. There could be no mistake. 
I told you so, cried the colonel triumphantly. I knew our country would not forsake us. It is an English ship, no doubt. In half an hour, two masts were visible above the horizon. See, was I not right? Our country was sure to send to our relief. Here is the ship. Yes, replied the major. She responded to our gun. It is to be hoped, muttered the corporal, that our ball has done her no damage. Before long, the hull was full in sight. A long trail of smoke betokened her to be a steamer, and very soon, by the aid of the glass, it could be ascertained that she was a schooner yacht, and making straight for the island, a flag at her masthead fluttered in the breeze, and towards this the two officers with the keenest attention respectively adjusted their focus. Simultaneously the two telescopes were lowered. The colonel and the major stared at each other in blank astonishment. Russian, they gasped. And true it was that the flag that floated at the head of the yacht mast was the Blue Cross of Russia. End of Book Chapter 13